Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. Uh, this is Rob here. For those of you who are new, so glad that you're joining with us this morning, and uh, we hope to get to know you and connect with you. Uh, to all the dads out there, I just want to wish you a happy Father's Day, and I also want to say happy National Indigenous Peoples Day. This is a good day today. I am doubly blessed. Okay. Well, today uh, we are launching a new teaching series called the Songs of Summer, and uh, we're going to be walking through the book of Psalms, uh, different Psalms, up until September long weekend, and we're going to have a whole blend of different communicators coming in to walk us through their favorite Psalms, maybe the most impactful Psalms in their own lives. So looking forward to that. Uh, The big question I think that we need to answer right at the beginning, right at the outset as we dive into the series is, why should we study the Psalms? Well, the thing about the Psalms is they've actually been the daily bread of Christians and of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, since the earliest of times. I mean, they were, the Psalms were the hymn book of ancient Israel. They were also the hymn book of Jesus and his followers in their day. So I, I think most of us, we can, we can kind of remember the lyrics to songs from our childhood and uh, from our teenage years, not so much our adult years necessarily. But uh, we can always remember those songs that we listened to in those younger days. The Psalms were on the tips of the tongues of Jesus and his disciples. I mean, they would have prayed and they would have sung these songs from their childhood. So, so Jesus and his ministry and his life were shaped in a psalm-shaped world. Now, the early church, of course, they also sang and prayed the psalms. I mean, they, they were central to the faith of the church throughout the ages. The, the psalms, they were sung and they were read in monasteries and in, and in cathedrals. I mean, through reformations and through revivals, in private prayer and in public praise. The psalms were there. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul, he said this. I just want to read a quote from him. He says, It has been said by the church... Uh, historians, that in those periods of Christian history where renewal, revival, and awakening took place, and the church was at its strongest, that coincidental with those periods in church history, there was a strong focus on the Psalms and the life of God's people, particularly in the worship of God's people. Now, the the Psalms, they they teach us so much about God and his story and and our world and our own lives. So, So they instruct the mind, but they also lift the heart. The writers of the Psalms, they, they pray and they praise with honesty and emotion. I mean, they bring to us comfort and conviction, laughter and lament, worship and wonder. I mean, in, in the Psalms, you encounter the real stuff of humanity. So they, they, they actually, they dive beneath the surface of shallow faith and they assault the emotional defenses. Think about the Psalms. It's like every situation of life, every situation of life is present in the books of Psalms. There's pretty much a Psalm for everything that you are going through today in your life. I like what Bono said, the lead singer of U2. He said, what's so powerful about the Psalms is, as well as being gospel and songs of praise, they are also the blues. And then C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. So, so you have this whole spectrum of human life experiences found in the Psalms. So Crossway, let me say this. I'll say this to you today. If you want to learn how to worship, if you want to know how to pray, 
If you want to find out how to relate to God, read the Psalms, sing the Psalms, dance the Psalms, weep the Psalms. It's all in there. And this is the value in knowing and studying the Psalms. To not just read the Psalms, but to allow them to read us also. Well, so today we're, we're going to start at Psalm 1, uh, which is actually in a very appropriate place to s- start because Psalm 1 is really the front door to the entire book of Psalms. You know, n- a number of scholars will say, uh, probably the majority of them, will say that, that Psalm 1 was actually written later than the rest of the book of Psalms. So it was, it was actually created for the purpose of introducing the book of Psalms to the readers and the singers. Now, if, if we were to summarize the theme of Psalm 1, I, I thought about this, and I, and I think you could really summarize it in the form of a singular question. And here's the question. Where are you at? Where are you at? Now, I'm aware, okay, I'm aware this is a slang expression, so, so let's pump the hate breaks, grammar ninjas, okay? I, I just think that this question really captures the essence of Psalm 1. You see, when you ask someone, where are you at? You, you could be talking about a, a few different things. Um, so, first of all, it, it, you could be talking about your location, right? So, my wife and Karen and Bailey were driving back yesterday from Saskatchewan. I texted them once, and I said, hey, where are you at? What's your location? Uh, this question can also be talking about your disposition, how you're doing. So let's say hypothetically, yesterday I hit you in the face with a giant hot burrito, right? I might call you up today and say, hey, where are you at? And what I'm really asking is, how are you doing? But the question also can be asked uh, to discover your progress, how much you've accomplished. So you know what? I, I, I gave you those TPS cover reports last week to finish. I just want to know where are you at, all right? How much have you accomplished? How much have you gotten done? Right? So, so Psalm 1, is, it's really a question about where you at, this question. And, and, it, and it really actually pulls all of these meanings together. And, and like a gatekeeper, it asks us to consider, before you continue in Psalms, before you continue working your way through the book, just stop and reflect. Where are you at? Where are you at? So let's work our way through the psalm together, and we'll see this, okay? Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Okay, very clearly, right off, the, the, the topic of this psalm is the blessed person, the blessed man, okay? And, and in the Bible, blessed means essentially to have the Lord's favor. And when we have the Lord's favor, ultimately it results in flourishing, in abounding. There's this sense of completeness and, and peace, shalom, that comes from being a blessed person. And what we'll soon discover in this psalm is that this blessing has everything to do with where you're at. See, where you at can disrupt God's blessing in your life. That's what this first verse is talking about. Your proximity to wrong kinds of people and their values can do this. It can disrupt God's blessing. So your influencers, your associations, your inner circle. And, and it's interesting, this, the psalmist actually kind of describes a progression here from walking to standing and then to sitting. And each step intensifies this association, the agreement with evil, right? So there's, first there's thinking, and then there's behaving, and then ultimately there's belonging. Until finally, you find yourself sitting with scoffers. Now, it's interesting. In, in Scripture, the scoffer is, is like the worst kind of fool. 
They mock the Lord's instruction. They, they ridicule anybody who takes it seriously. I mean, it's one thing to skirt the rules, but it's quite another thing to scoff them. So to sit with scoffers is essentially to be among those who ultimately oppose the Lord and his teachings. And so the psalmist asks us, he asks us this question. He says, hey, do you want to be blessed? Do you want the Lord's favor? Well, where are you walking? Where are you standing? Where are you sitting? Where are you at? Let's keep going. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So here we discover what the source of the blessing is. The source for ancient Israel was the Torah. The, the, the Torah was, was basically the law. Um, it was the first five books of the Bible as we have it today. Uh, but this was the Bible of ancient Israel. And this was given to them, to the people, by, on, by the Lord on Mount Sinai through Moses. Uh, at, just after God had rescued them from Egypt. You probably know the story. And of course, it, in the Torah, it wasn't just a bunch of rules right? It, 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 it told the story of Israel. It revealed the character of Yahweh. Um, but it also described how Israel could walk in covenant faithfulness to the Lord. Um, and God promised them, as you read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, God promised them this. He says, if you will do this, if you'll obey the law, if you'll keep the covenant, I will bless you. That's the promise. But the thing about the law, what's interesting is it wasn't just a, a bunch of scrolls with a bunch of data, okay? It was never meant to just gather dust on a shelf. It was actually meant to be internalized. You see, when God gave them the law, uh, he, he said to them, do everything you could to remember it. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, you know, keep it in your, keep it in your heart. Te teach it to your children. Talk about it all the time. I mean, if you have to, if you have to, write it on the doorposts of your house. This is how important the law is. It was meant to be internalized. So the psalmist, though, it's interesting in this text, he says it's, it's not enough just to know God's word. Not just to have the information. He says blessing comes to those who delight in God's word. Now, think about this. I mean, this is like the exact opposite of a scoffer, right? Because what does a scoffer do? A scoffer disdains God's word, but the righteous delight in God's word. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is something that you delight in? I mean, it's going to be different for everybody, right? So maybe it's, it's digging in your garden. Maybe it's campfires with friends. Maybe it's riding your bike or sunsets on the beach. Maybe it's just finishing off that last task item on a checklist, you sicko. Um, maybe it's the sound of children laughing, right? Maybe it's just a day with absolutely nothing to do. What do you delight in? I, wanna, I want us to just do an experiment this morning. I want us to just take a moment, and I want you to think about something you delight in. It probably came to you just as I asked that question. Do you know what it is? And I want you to do is just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to put yourself there. I want you to imagine doing that thing. And I want us to just take a minute to dream and to experience that moment. Can we do that together? Close your eyes. What do you delight in? Think about it and imagine it for a moment. Put yourself there. Maybe smile as you do it.
now. How does that feel? See, the psalmist says the blessed person delights in God's word. And I wonder, have you, have you ever felt that before? Have you ever experienced that before? Can you think of a time in your life where God's word just evoked something in you? Where the words just kind of jumped off the page and did a belly flop into your heart? Or maybe you felt encouraged or peaceful or happy or, or, or inspired. See, the thing about God's word is, is it's meant to be a delight. And it can be a delight if your heart is postured towards it being so. And you know, the psalmist says, because, because the blessed person delights in God's instruction, they also meditate on it. Now, now meditating is, is very different than reading, okay? Uh, meditating is more thoughtful. It's more engaging. It involves more lingering over the text. It's slow, and it's deliberate, and there's reading and rereading and questioning. There's, there's reflection and wonder and consideration, I thought about it, and I think in many ways it's like eating toffee. Um, this past week, my daughter Bailey made some hard toffee. I'm not sure if it was intended to be hard toffee, but it turned out that way, hard toffee. And, I mean, this toffee is so hard that you actually have to break it with a hammer. I'm not breaking it. Oh, I broke it. Good. Okay. Um, so, so this toffee, you don't put it in your mouth and start chewing it, okay, because it will bust your teeth. There is only one way to eat this toffee. You have to let it just slowly melt in your mouth. But, but trust me, I mean, it is actually delicious toffee. And uh, when you put a piece in your mouth, I mean, you, you, you savor that sweet, like brown sugary goodness until your cheeks are, cheeks are like bursting with saliva. You know, when your saliva grounds are like aching, that's what kind of toffee it is. And, and then you just kind of roll it around on your tongue until it dissolves into this syrupy mess in your back of your throat and you swallow it. And it's just, it's just so good. It's delicious. This is what meditation on God's word is like. It's deliberate. It's patient. You're not rushing. You're not wolfing it down. But at the end of the day, it's worth it because it is delightful. Well, let's read some more. Verse 3. He is like a tree. This is the blessed person. Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, th this verse makes a whole lot more sense when you consider the geography of where it was written, okay? You see, the, the climate in Israel is super arid. There's a lot of desert regions. So in the dry season, it's, it's like there is unrelenting heat. There is very little precipitation, okay? And the result is, in that climate, if a tree does not have water, it will wither and it will die. It just won't even survive or it won't produce fruit. But the author says that a tree that is planted by a stream of water flourishes in every season. So in the wet season or in the dry season, in the good times and in the bad, okay? It, it, it even produces fruit. Its leaf does not wither or dry up. And so the psalmist is inviting us into this metaphor, and it's inviting us to, to think about more, reflect on this metaphor. And, and so let me just get us to consider a few lessons about this metaphor. First of all, 
The thing about a tree is that the process of a tree's growth is often hidden. It's mostly hidden. The thing about a tree is it feeds itself from its roots. It, it uses water underneath the ground to slowly draw in nutrients from the soil, which it then turns into leaves and bark and flowers and, and fruit. And, and the, this nourishment process to the naked eye is not always obvious because most of it is actually happening beneath the surface. The roots of a tree are mostly invisible. And I think this is true of most godly men and women. They feed on the Word of God, and they do it often in solitude and in silence, reflecting, meditating, and praying. And this hidden work is ultimately what grows them into mighty oaks. But here's a second lesson I think we can learn from the tree, is that a tree never eats its own fruit. See, the tree's fruit is actually for everyone else to enjoy. The fruit also contains seeds, and those seeds multiply into more trees, right? So, so a flourishing tree is ultimately life-giving because it is, it is life-receiving. So those who delight in God's Word, what it's saying is they will ultimately produce fruit. And for us, that means the fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the fruit of more lives transformed by Christ. So as you receive life from the Word, as you dig down your roots deep, you then can give life to the world. But finally, this, this nourishment process doesn't happen in an instant. Okay, there is no microwave faith here. It takes years to grow a tree. As a matter of fact, for most fruit trees, it takes five to ten years before that fruit tree actually even produces any fruit. So growing in Christ's likeness, it, it is a it is a long obedience in the same direction. It takes time and patience. It's a lifelong work to grow a man or woman of God. So what is the most important factor, ultimately, that determines a tree's flourishing? Well, it's where it's planted. It's where it's rooted. It's where it's at. And so the question for each and every one of us today is, where are you at? Where are you at? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What was chaff? Well, chaff, chaff was essentially the, the useless leftovers of the grain harvest. So let me, let me just explain ancient agriculture to, to those who are maybe a little bit unfamiliar. Uh, when you would harvest grain, uh, essentially what you would have is you'd have a dry husk around each grain. And that dried husk around the grain was called chaff. So what you ultimately wanted to do is you wanted to remove the chaff from the grain. Keep the grain, get rid of the chaff at the end of the day. Because the thing about chaff is it's ultimately inedible. Humans cannot eat it. There are some animals and livestock that can eat it. But for humans, no. Not unless you want a really, 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 really high fiber diet. But it's probably not a good idea. So after harvesting the grain, what the ancients would do is they would take the grain and they would lay them out on a flat surface, which was called the threshing floor. And then they would um, beat them or they would crush them. And what this would ultimately do is separate the chaff from the grain. But here's the thing is that the chaff was still mixed in with the grain, right? And so what were you going to do? How are you going to get the two separated? I mean, are you going to go up and pick each individual grain? Probably not a good idea. Not very efficient. So there's probably a more efficient way to doing it. So the next step after that was what was known as winnowing. Okay, so what ancients would do is they would take the thresh grain to a very windy place. Oftentimes, this was on the top of a hill because that's where the most wind was. And they would take this mixed-in grain and chaff, and they would throw it high into the air. And what would happen is the wind would come along, and it would blow the chaff away, and the heavier grains would just fall to the ground. And then what would they do with the chaff afterwards is they'd, they'd scatter it, or they'd ultimately just burn it because it was absolutely useless. That's the thing about chaff. Chaff is worthless. 
It has no nutritional value. It has no life within it. In other words, you can't plant chaff and hope to produce more grain at the end of the day. And I, I wonder if you've noticed this morning the, the contrast in the psalm between the tree and the chaff. I mean, the tree is rooted and it's tapped into life-giving water. But the chaff ultimately is just, it's dry and it's dead. The tree ultimately produces, produces fruit, okay, to help others and to bless others. But the chaff, at the end of the day, it can produce absolutely nothing. But most importantly, the tree is rooted. The tree is it's grounded. But the chaff has no roots. It is fleeting. The chaff is unhinged. And, and, the, and the point after that in verse 5 is just the same way. It's to say that ultimately at the end of the day, the chaff, the wicked, will not stand in the judgment. So there, there will ultimately be natural consequences to the choices made by the chaff, by the wicked. And in the end, God, who is a just God and who is a good God and a righteous God, in the end, God will ultimately bring all things to bear. Now, of course, in Psalm 1, this is, this is in the Old Testament. This is before the time of Jesus. This is before the time of the New Testament. Okay, but so in the Old Testament context here, it's, it's of course, it's not speaking specifically about the full-blown teaching of the afterlife and the final judgment when Jesus returns. It's speaking about God's justice and judgment in a broader sense. However, we can't apply this because, remember, this was Jesus' Bible, this is what Jesus grew up reading and knowing and understanding. And Jesus makes it clear that ultimately everyone one day will stand before him who will be the judge, but also the savior and rescuer. And in that day, Jesus says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. And so again, the, the psalmist is asking us this question. Where will you stand? Where are you at? Right? Location, location, location. Well, let's look at the last verse. Here's what verse 6 says. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And, and so the psalm ends kind of, at a, kind of at a bit of crossroads, right? It's saying there's, there's two ways. There's two paths to walk on. And it's, it's interesting. You find this in the teaching of Jesus, don't you? He talks about the narrow way and, 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 and the wide way, the wide path. Okay, so there's two paths here to walk on. And, and it says that the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. One leads to the blessed life and the other one leads to destruction. And it also says that God is paying attention to us. And he knows which way we take, which path we walk on. His eye is on us. And, and in many ways this can be so reassuring. But in many ways it can also be very, very frightening. Because, I mean, if I'm just honest with you this morning, if I could just give you a moment of honesty, I know that I haven't always taken the right way. Sometimes my heart takes detours to the wrong path. Or sometimes I'm on the right path, but I ultimately want to be on the wrong path. Or sometimes I find that I'm straddling two paths at the same time. I wonder this morning if anyone can relate. Can you relate with me this morning? So I, I, I find that I don't actually measure up to the expectations of this psalm all the time. And, and I desperately want to be the blessed man. But I find myself falling short so often, time and time again. I am not the blessed man of this psalm. So at the end of the day, where does this leave me? And, and, and where, does, where does this leave you? So who is the blessed man that this psalm speaks of? I mean, think about it. Who, who, is, who has never followed the counsel of the wicked? Who has never stood in the way of sinners? Who has never sat at the seat of mockers? 
I mean, consider for a moment. Let's, let's think about some of, the, some of the great men of the Bible. I mean, let's think about Abraham, the father of faith. Well, we know for sure that Abraham lied about his wife. So, I mean, he doesn't measure up. Um, what about Moses, who gave us the law? This is Moses, right? Well, there's that time that he killed somebody, right? Murdered him. Uh, there's that other time he got really, really upset at Meribah, okay? So, scratch Moses off your list. Um, David. Let's think about David, okay? The man after God's own heart. Well, what did David do? Well, he slept with Bathsheba. There's that, I suppose. And um, he was complicit in her husband's murder. Well, as a matter of fact, he pretty much set it up and commanded it. So, yeah, David doesn't measure it up either. There is only one person who fully delighted in the law of the Lord. There's only one person who, who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who did not stand in the way of sinners, who did not sit in the seat of, uh, the seat of scoffers or mockers. And that one person in human history is Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. He completed the law in himself when he was here on earth and lived among us. And he did this so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for the sins of all the world, a lamb without spot or blemish, blemish Jesus, the lamb of God. And the Bible says that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, so the truth is, I mean, at the end of the day, none of us completely deserves the blessings of Psalm 1. But guess what? We know someone who does. And he says that if we completely trust in him, that if we give him our lives, that if we receive his salvation, then, then we can have spiritual union with him. So I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And in this union, I have forgiveness and I have adoption and I have a new name, and I have a new position, and ultimately I have a new life in Christ through the Spirit of God, so that, so that I can actually share in all of the spiritual blessings that are in Christ Jesus. So how about you? Where are you at? Are you in Christ today? Have you, have you put your trust in him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you received him? And entered into spiritual union with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. See, because if you are in Christ, then you can pursue the blessings of Psalm 1 with absolute confidence. You can dig roots deep into Jesus, the source of eternal living water. You, you can delight in his word. You can meditate on his word, which connect you to Jesus, who is the living word. And the result, Jesus promises, is that it'll be a life that endures storms and droughts. It won't be a life without storms and droughts, but it will be a life that can endure storms and droughts. And a life that produces fruit ultimately for the sake of others and for the entire world. So this psalm's blessing is for you through Christ Jesus. So the question I, I, I want to end with today is, is really practical. The question is, that, well, how do we do this? I mean, how do we, how do we put this into practice? So, cross point, what if, I love the what if question, what if this summer you began a new spiritual practice in your life? See, here's the thing. There's, there's approximately 80 days between now and the September long weekend, okay? And September long weekend is going to be the last weekend of this teaching series. Think about it. There are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms. If you were to, what if, what if we all slowed down 
and we slowly worked our way through the book of Psalms this summer and just did one psalm per day. You know, by, by the end of summer, ultimately, you would find yourself about halfway through the book. You'll probably miss some. You're human, right? Um, you're going to make mistakes, right? Or things will come up in your life. And that's okay. I would just encourage you to keep going. But what if we all, all slowly worked our way through the book of Psalms this summer? And what I'm suggesting is scripture meditation and not scripture reading. See, scripture reading is important, but it's, it's often more, more better for gaining the big picture of scripture, the meta-narrative. It's also better for gaining information or for developing a theology. But scripture meditation is different. It's much more intentional, and it's much more transformative for us. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a great book. I'm recommending it if you get a chance to read it. The book is called Eat This Book. Eugene Peterson, of course, was the one who, um, who wrote the, the message translation of the Bible. And in this book, Eat the Book, it's really, it's a book about engaging the Word of God. And, and the, the book was actually inspired by Eugene Peterson's dog, okay? Um, and Peterson was, was translating through the Old Testament, and he was de delighted to find that when he discovered uh, the Hebrew word for meditate is the same Hebrew word that is translated as growls in Isaiah. So that's the thing about Hebrew words. They can mean a number of different things depending on the context. So in, in Isaiah 31 verse 4, it says, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. That's the same Hebrew word for meditation. And so one day, Eugene Peterson is thinking about this, and, and then he's watching his dog. And he observes his dog in the corner, and the dog is, is eating a bone. It's gnawing at it, it's licking it, it's worrying over the bone, and, and it's making these, these deep, throaty rumbles of pleasure. And then the dog is not in a hurry at all. He's just enjoying this bone. And what Peter, uh, Peterson began to discover is that meditating on Scripture is very much like that. And that's what the point in, his, in Isaiah 31 is, is that it's like a lion growling over its prey or a dog growling over his bone. That's what meditation is often like. So I want to read from Peterson. And, and, and in the text I'm going to read, he says, uh, he, the point he's trying to make is that because the Bible is the word of God, I mean, it's different than any other book on the planet. Because it's the word of God, it, it really requires a different kind of reading than any other book. And here's what he writes. He says, you know, there's a certain kind of writing that invites this kind of reading. Soft purrs and low growls as we taste and savor, anticipate and take in the sweet and spicy, mouth-watering and soul-energizing morsel words. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Such writing anticipates and counts on a certain kind of reading. A dog with a bone kind of reading. Reading is an immense gift, but only if the words are assimilated taken into the soul, eaten, chewed, gnawed, received in unhurried delight. Words of men and women long dead or separated by miles and or years come off the page and enter our lives freshly and precisely, conveying truth and beauty and goodness. Words that God's Spirit has used and uses to breathe life into our souls. This is what I want to challenge us towards this summer. I want to challenge us to eat this book, like, like a dog gnawing on a bone. I mean, don't just wolf down your food. Don't just pick away at it like you're eating appetizers at a dinner party. But sit down with it. Meditate on it. Delight in it. Eat this book. 
Now, how do you do that? I mean, there, there are different ways to do scripture meditation. And actually, this week on Realm, I'm going to post a number of different articles on this that I think will be helpful for you as you consider entering into this practice of scripture meditation. But here's where you can start. I suggest this. Number one, pray before you eat. Okay? So allow yourself to, to be addressed by the living God. And say, God, I want to read your word. I invite you through your Holy Spirit to teach me, to instruct me, to change me. The second thing is I'd recommend that you read it through. Read through the entire psalm, but then read through it again, slowly. You might read it out loud, because oftentimes for some of us, if you're reading something silently, your mind gets distracted. So read it out loud, but read it through again and again. Third, I would say ask questions of the text. Ask the question, like, what is this saying? And what's it saying to me? And, and what's it saying about me? And what would God have me do? Ask lots of good questions. And finally, I'd say, uh, or fourth, I'd say, write down what you're learning. You know, maybe you're a journaler. This might be a good time for you to just start scratching out what it is. Sometimes, you, sometimes your thoughts have to be written out in order for them to make sense or to have gravity. And finally, I would say at the end, do as you did at the beginning. Pray to God about what you read. Do what it says. Thank God for it. You might even just pray through the entire psalm one part at a time as you go through it. So those are just some very practical ways that you can do scripture meditation. But again, cross point. I just want to challenge you. I'm putting, out the, putting down the gauntlet. What if you were to meditate on one psalm a day for the entire summer? What would that do to you? What would that do in you? And what fruit would that produce in your life to bless others who are around you? So cross point, here's the question. Where are you at? Where are you at? Where are you rooted? Jesus invites us into a soul's feast of delight. Will you accept his invitation today? Hey, why don't we pray together? We thank you, Lord, for this great gift of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's your special revelation to us, that you have chosen to, to write it, to preserve it, and to have it available to us. Thank you, Lord, that it is only a, a, a hand's breadth away from each of us, Lord. It's in our phones, Lord. It's amazing that the word of God is so accessible to us. And yet, God, we don't access it, and we ask you to forgive us for not doing that. But God, we, we pray this summer um, that you would inspire us to read it, to eat it, to feast on it. And Lord, we pray that you would make us a people who love your word, who live by your word, who, who, who would die without it, who would die from a famine of your word. So we thank you for it, Lord. And, and we thank you for the blessed life that is available to those of us who hear your words and Put them into action. And God, for those who are just tuning in today and who maybe don't know you, who have not um, given their lives to you and surrendered their lives to you completely, I pray today would be their day. I pray today would be the day where they um, surrender their hearts to you, that they might enter into your blessing, Lord, that they might receive your forgiveness and enter into union with you. And I pray they would. And so, God, we bless you today, and we praise you, and we thank you for the gift and the gifts you give in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. 
We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton, and you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.